This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. goes uh mr robert palmer god it, we had uh the uh the video going on in the uh in the studio and comment how much of its time that that particular track is um welcome back radiotherapy with uh dr sharma hawkeye and uh, myself panel beater film oh <laughs> after just introducing you as dr sharma um Dr. Sharma, what did what caught your eye in news in 2018? Well, reviewing everything, I had a couple of stories to bring up. Uh, they seem like two separate things, but they've got something in common, which is hope and optimism. Because I know in 2018 I've brought up a lot of doom and gloom and complaining about the system, complaining about the man keeping us down, but... Uh, these are stories that really represent some astonishing medical accomplishments in 2018. So firstly, the rates of cervical cancer in Australia are dropping so low that it's set to become rare. Uh, This is something that recently came out. And also this year in 2018, we have rolled out PrEP, that is a new medication that GPs can now prescribe to prevent the spread of HIV. And so these are massive breakthroughs in this one year, really, um, or maybe not even breakthroughs particularly, but just we've realised we've, how far we've gotten with these things. Uh, with two of the biggest medical fears people have, like cancer and, and AIDS, I reckon a good 25% of my consultations just reassuring people they haven't got either of these things wrong with them. Uh, but there's a, a huge kind of cultural significance to these things, which we'll touch on later as well. But Firstly, regarding cervical cancer, we've had the tag team efforts of pap smears and, uh, and vaccines, and Australia's really led the world here. So over the last 30 years, we've had a really rigorous screening program of two yearly pap smears, and that alone caused cervical cancer drop, rates to drop by 50%. But uh, the HPV vaccination program began in 2007. Uh, the HPV vaccine, of course, immunises people against human papillomavirus, HPV, the bug that causes the cancerous changes in the cervix, co-invented by an Aussie, Professor Ian Fraser. And so with these two things combined, uh, you know, in 2018, we've realised how far we've gotten that we the, the cervical cancer rates could be considered officially rare in just two years. And if trends continue, the disease could be considered eradicated by 2066, so low are the numbers going to be. And it sounds like, you know, it's a long time away, but it's it's really not not that far away. And I, I just think it's just a huge kind of accomplishment mm. and such a success story of not just medical science, but regulators and the public getting on board and, and, and nurses and, and everyone who's just kind of preached the message, uh, the message to kind of get tested. And it's just been a fantastic story. So one of the things that's given me a lot of hope this year. Yeah, look, it absolutely. I mean, it's incredible. And it turns out that vaccines work. Um, well, you know. And, uh, and so the HPV vaccine is an example of one of, uh, one of, kind of three, you know, really big uh, medical interventions that have, uh, that have really uh, dr- uh, targeted cancer. One is hepatitis B vaccine, which has been around for a long time, targeting liver cancer. The other is, uh, the other is hepatitis C treatment now, mm. just this astonishing advance. And that's a story that often doesn't get that much credit, that hepatitis C treatment and, in fact, the unbelievable bargaining uh, approach of, uh, of the Australian health system towards getting these expensive medicines to the people who need them, um, you know, is a t- is a cancer treatment is a cancer prevention uh, intervention and that's that's 
just just wild that you know that uh, that uh, we've we've been able to uh, so kind of so convincingly come up with these these interventions. The other thing to say is that that almost none of these interventions would have happened if it was just for you know just for a few doctors in research labs coming up with stuff. Particularly, I think when it comes to uh, Dr. Sharma's next point about prep, mm. right? About uh, so. That's pre-exposure prophylaxis, so pr- a drug that protects you from contracting HIV uh, if you're exposed. You know that that drug. You know the drug came from a lab, right? But the the idea of using it in this kind of way came from a community, in a community that was affected by HIV, and that's predominantly uh, uh, predominantly men who have sex with men, but also other communities affected by HIV who really actually uh, looked for novel solutions to a, to a really big problem and pushed an agenda far ahead of where medicine was taking that agenda. They, you know, in, in many respects, the, the patients and the community dragged, dragged medicine into, this, uh, into, this, uh, into these advances. And I think, it, you know, it's a really great example of kind of bottom-up medicine that's right, yeah, because it's not just a scientific success. It's this, yeah, this yeah. ground uh, groundswell of support that starts from the, the community to regulatory success as well and getting people and politicians are on board. If, uh, if we recall, of course, uh, you know, say even in the United States, um, there were politicians who were kind of completely opposing research even into this. Uh, so it's you know it's been a joint effort by a lot of people, and and now we're we're hitting the reality where instead of prep this pre-exposure prophylaxis medication being something that you could only get on, on a scientific trial if you were enrolled as a subject or for ten grand a year, now it's forty bucks a month. And uh, you know I remember growing up in India, which at the time had one of the highest rates of uh, HIV spread there was just palpable fear amongst people about this being something that cannot be controlled and it's utterly hopeless. And now, of course, uh, life expectancy after getting HIV is improved astronomically. And now, as, uh, as, as Hawkeye mentioned, we've got these medications. You take these tablets uh, once a day. And even if you're exposed to the, to the virus, uh, very little chance that you're, you're going to contract it. And it's, it's an odd thing, isn't it? Like when... You have this sense of hopelessness about these medical conditions, say things like, say, cervical cancer or HIV or even, say, hepatitis C that you mentioned earlier. Um, it's, it's easy to kind of get down about the fact that there's not much progress occurring, but this is a bit of a cognitive bias we have. We, underest- we maybe overestimate what should get done within the next couple of years, two or three years, completely underestimate what can be done over the process of decades um, just even outside the lab, you know, when we get uh, support from all kind of stakeholders, isn't including a, patients. That's a play on a Bill Gates quote, isn't it? That we overestimate what we can get done in a day, but underestimate... No, but underestimate what we can, can get done, done in, in 10. 10. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah something like that. Yeah. I, think, and I think it should be an inspiring example to people who, in the non-medical world who, you know, look at things like climate change as too hard yeah. and, and other points, that you can... You can, in a generation, turn things around, and uh, and these are kind of hepatitis B, sorry, hepatitis C and HIV, and uh, are great examples of it. Cervical cancer as well. Yeah. Well, um, Hawkeye, I think you've just um, maybe unwittingly, but nevertheless, did um, point to a really interesting compare contrast uh, opportunity with the way medical research is undertaken, where compared to um, policy implications for climate change science and research. In Australia, at least, and some other countries, uh, the sorts of research that sits behind these vaccines and therefore the intellectual property and ownership and therefore the public policy is that it's state-owned. 
the consequences of climate change research is so heavily weighted in favour of the private domain, ID, uh, i.e. Um, Adani, etc., 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 and the big powerful mm. um, uh, oil companies, that the, the public debate and enthusiasm on those respective scientific endeavours is quite a contrast, isn't it? Mm, because of where the responsibility falls and what you can, can't control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it sort of points to, you know, um, you know public health systems mm. um, and as opposed to, say, public property, you know, barrier reef for example well that's the benefit of analyzing things with their public health perspective because it automatically forces you to take ownership and responsibility and accountability of what's going on yep and uh, i think that's going to be the, the key to solving that crisis which is uh recessing responsibility nice one dr sharma uh josh oh Hawkeye, my brain is all over the shop no problem. Uh, this morning. No problem. I think, that, I think the swinging microphone yeah, may, yeah. may have hit you in the head. Yeah, it was off to a grand start. <laughs> um, so, look, I think another... Uh, so, a mixed news story, and that's the that's the uh, progress or uh, pro- mixed progress on the Closing the Gap uh, project, if you like, um, in terms of uh, uh, Indigenous health in Australia. And, and very early... So, relatively early this year, what we had was the Closing the Gap report card. So, uh, um, so since the apology... Uh, uh, the Kevin Rudd gave. Uh, we've had this kind of year, this annual statutory obligation by the federal government to report on the progress towards a number of goals in Indigenous health. And and this year, I think uh, you know we, we've seen uh, on a few of the objectives uh, a mark of being on track, and that's looking at Aboriginal child mortality. So to halve the gap in mortality rates for Indigenous children under five within a decade, so by this year, looks on track. Wow. Uh, early education, so 95% of all Indigenous four-year-olds enrolled in early childhood education by 2025, doesn't sound it doesn't sound like a health outcome at the you know at the top level, but it absolutely is a health outcome. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is a health outcome, and it predicts better health into the future. Um, and Year 12 attainment to halve the gap in year 12 attainment by 2020 and that looks on track but not on track is life expectancy employment reading and writing targets and school attendance targets and so it's a bit of a mixed picture a bit of a mixed picture there um some of you you could argue that some of those things have a little bit of a lag time and that you know that it's unsurprising that you're not making advances in some areas uh, as fast as other areas um and but i think um I think that mixed picture uh, really is reflected in, in lots of other ways. You see, you see government that doesn't seem very interested in uh, in self determination steps like the uh, the Uluru statement from the heart, um, and which I think actually I think a lot of uh, I think was seen by the indigenous community as a real uh, um, uh, a real betrayal perhaps and a uh, something that um, something that uh, was a real step backward um, in the sense that indigenous people got together made a statement about about uh, where they saw uh, the agenda heading and uh, and were rebuffed um, and uh, given Tony Abbott as a, as a special envoy um, so that's that's the kind of the sad side a little bit and the mixed side but I think the, the positive side and is that is that I think more and more Aboriginal communities are actually taking this uh, taking this on board themselves, and you see that in you know a really good example is thinking about rheumatic heart disease. So rheumatic heart disease being a uh, a, a result of immune immune system caused injury to the heart valves after relatively innocuous infections caused by a bacteria, the bacteria that gives you a strep throat, so group A strep, um, gives you a strep throat and in very vulnerable people can cause damage to their heart. That damage to the heart can uh, injure the heart in a way that causes 
chronic problems like heart failure um, and can require very early surgery for valves. And at the Royal Children's in Melbourne, we would have done uh, a number of uh, heart open heart surgeries to replace or repair valves on very young children in the last month. Um, and uh, and so, you know, we're talking about... Uh, talking about something that has a huge impact on, on fam- individuals, families and communities. Um, but Aboriginal communities have actually got ahead of the curve and there are communities that are basically teaching themselves how to do heart ultrasounds uh, to actually identify this, uh, uh, identify this uh, problem early so that we can, you know, intervene as early as possible um, and take control. They've, uh, you know, with, with, some, uh, with some medical collaborators and uh, using a community kind of led approach, uh, identified a community in the Northern Territory that had the, that has probably the highest rates of this condition anywhere in the world. And it's a condition that is basically uh, pro- uh, you know proportional to poverty it's a condition of poverty and uh, and this community is affected uh, you know more than anywhere else in the world which is fairly disgraceful um, you know uh, sub you know sub country example of health in australia it's a you know if you look at Australian average health, you miss these you miss these examples. And that's true for a lot of countries, that these these small islands of terrible health outcomes are, are missed when you just look at the whole country. Um, but that community's really uh, really take uh, really uh, uh, taking that problem on. And uh, in one of the few times you'll hear me, uh, you'll hear me compliment the the, uh, the federal government. Uh, uh, Ken Wyatt, the uh, Indigenous Min- the Minister for Indigenous Health, has actually really been pushing this agenda in a big way, and I think has has uh, has worked um, has worked incredibly hard to put uh, rheumatic heart disease (RHD) on the uh, on the federal government's agenda. Um, you see the AMA pushing very hard on this. Um, you know, and this is a problem that you know globally. This is a really nice example of a kind of a local and global link globally this is a problem with 34 million at least that's a really conservative estimate 34 million people living with rheumatic heart disease and uh, you know and a, a death rate you know sorry and probably about 350,000 deaths a year attributable to rheumatic heart disease again conservative estimates but that's how big this problem is and things that are happening in australia right now are part of the solution to this problem to this global problem and and you know and ken wyatt and and the federal government have to get some credit for that i think and you know it's it's a shame that things need to perhaps get so bad for there to be such a bipartisan uh, approach but you know the the flip side of it is that yeah there are some things that are just above you know the left right conservative liberal uh, uh polarities of politics and you know it's a good example when things can come together that's so it's nice to hear that some of those targets are actually being closed in uh the, those gaps 3 triple Welcome back, Radio Therapy. We're doing a uh, 2018 News in Review. You're with uh, Dr. Sharma Hawkeye and myself, Panel Beater. Um, I've got a, uh, an item that caught my eye, a big uh, item from a, uh, a couple of months ago. Um, in you know, it's it's a news item. That probably appears in a lot of uh, news in a year in review news items, depending on your perspective. It refer uh, the one that I'm talking about is related to how Dr. Blasey Ford spoke about um, how memory works in victims of traumatic experiences. And just by way of context, uh, Blasey Ford, for uh, to jog your memory, was um, before a, a Senate inquiry through the appointment of um, a Supreme Court Justice. Justice Kavanaugh, and um, she had made a claim, or, well, 
<laughs> somebody had made a claim on her behalf that brought it to the surface that meant that she needed to turn up and uh, and uh, present a um, uh, her story around a an alleged um, abuse from some time ago. So she was brought before, and we're so used to these sorts of stories being couched in opinion and um, just ideological positioning and so on and so forth. So here was uh, Dr. Blasey Ford um, herself, um, well-credentialed um, researcher uh, before the Senate inquiry, um, actually using, can you believe it, actual science in her mm. in her testimony. I've got a little clip and we can come back and talk about how we understand uh, the impact of somebody talking about um, memory and trauma. You're so sure that it was he? Uh, the same way that I'm sure that I'm talking to you right now. It's so just basic memory functions um, and uh, also just the level of norepinephrine and epinephrine in the brain that sort of, as you know, encodes that neurotransmitter encodes memories into the hippocampus and so the trauma-related experience then is kind of locked there whereas other details kind of drift. So what you are telling us is this could not be a case of mistaken identity. Absolutely not. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, well, so there was uh, Blasey Ford giving us uh, chapter and verse in a very succinct, neat and tidy nutshell on how memory works uh, in the uh, episode for a trauma victim. It was so nice, such a, so nice that moment because the tone of the question being asked of her was almost rhetorical. I'm not sure what the intention was, but it was like, you know, how can you be sure you remember? And it was just this very straightforward, objective answer about how it is that people remember and, and it, was, it was fantastic. Because it was at the core of a lot of the debate, wasn't it? You know, so it went straight to the heart of the issue. There were those who were saying... Um, First of all, it was so long ago it doesn't matter, or B, it was so long ago that she couldn't possibly be a reliable witness for herself, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and she brought science to the debate, yeah. which th I think one of the reasons why that episode st um, stuck with me so much um, is that we, s we seem to be really deprived of people talking with expertise about specific topics, referring back to the climate change debate, for example. Plenty of climate scientists out there who know what they're talking about, but they're rarely the voice in front of us talking about climate change and, and, and medical issues for that matter. That's right, and I think this was just a happy coincidence that the person who is being, have their reputation impugned just happened to be an expert on it. And, um, yeah. uh, and it, was, it was really beautiful the way that she described it and uh, it, this started off this kind of social media uh, conversation about how memory works and dispelling some of the myths so I, I think she really described that very beautifully. She, she also mentioned that new, uh, norepinephrine which is really important because parts of the criticisms of her uh, memory were that well she didn't remember which date the party was on and she didn't remember you know all, all these other tiny details so norepinephrine is uh, when it comes to memories what we term is like a neuromodulator it actually uh, you tend to remember things more that are emotionally salient so on the day it wasn't particularly important what the date was and who invited her to the party this was the bit that stimulated norepinephrine uh, it made the memories very salient it's what we call like a flashbulb uh, memory where you know the moment something emotionally salient happens you tend to remember it very well and while yes when we get emotional our memories can uh, sometimes be inaccurate actually when those episodic memories are what we call autobiographical happen to us 
They're incredibly accurate. And we know this from experience. We tend to remember what happened to us extremely, extremely well. It just occurs to me, uh, thinking about memory and, and trauma or, or the other way around, you know, some really significant happy moment. Um, coming into uh, Christmas, a lot of families get together and they, you know, after a <laughs> couple of sherbets, start to swap family stories about things that happen. And I, for one, and I know I'm not alone from speaking to others, the way that families remember particular episodes from a long time ago so kids saying how they remember their parents treating them when they were five or something like that and the parents saying no that was not that's not what we did at five you know da 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 and people are really can they, they speak with conviction about their memories um in in those really emotional moments that's true and uh especially for families when you think about it when most of us are in our families and we're kind of adolescents and and that's actually known to be a time where you're you tend to remember that phase of your life very well for for just everyone uh, and which is, of course, kind of when she went through the trauma of her life. So incredibly kind of reliable uh, memory in that way. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that's when, when all the the, the 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 stories come out, and all just takes a little bit of a trigger, and everyone remembers the anecdote like it was just kind of happened yesterday. So yeah. it's a nice moment. Let's uh, keep the uh, the news items coming, uh, Dr. Sharma. Something else caught your eye. That's right. So just a couple of months ago, uh, Health Minister Greg Hunt issued a national apology to hundreds of women who suffered due to pelvic mesh implants. Now this is something that had been unrolling over the last kind of eighteen months or so. Now mesh, uh, in in terms of pelvic mesh, is a medical device that looks like a little bit of like a webbing or a net, and it's used to keep internal body tissue in place. And you use it all the time for things like hernias in your groin, your abdomen. Uh, the problem arose when the meshes were approved for use in the, in the pelvises of women for things like prolapse and urinary incontinence and so over the last couple of decades uh, many Australian women have had these inserted and many of these women develop really serious side effects such as recurring infections debilitating chronic pain and the theory is that the mesh instead of taking place either moved or crumpled and caused the body to have a reaction now the reason why this story is noteworthy is that side effects can occur all the time but the concern here was that authorities didn't really check the data closely before approving it and probably more importantly didn't really collect the data about the side effects uh, afterwards when women were suffering. Um, so yes, there's some culpability on you know the manufacturers. For example, Johnson and Johnson, 700 women class uh, filed a class action suit saying they knew about the the defects in the products. But one of the things that women really complained about was doctors not taking their complaints seriously. And this is something I've seen quite a bit, uh, especially when women are in pain. This is kind of cultural concept of women being overly dramatic or emotional. And, you know, I probably think it's the other way around. It's actually men who tend to be too often unemotional about these things. And we kind of conflate the two when we see uh, women who complain uh, in pain that they are, you know, perhaps exaggerating or it's perhaps the anxiety that's kind of playing these things up. And we just saw the train wreck of this uh, occur. Probably hundreds, if not thousands, of women who were uh, ignored and told that this is normal because we have this kind of cultural concept of pelvic pain and women being normal. Uh, yeah, even this year, I've seen several young women present with you know, doubling over in pain on the floor every month thinking this is normal because I've been told that 
Puri's hurt. And, you know, it turns out it's endometriosis. Um, so it was a, a real frank realisation for the medical community to go, yeah, I think we need to kind of take these things quite seriously, apart from consenting people for these things quite well and, and collecting data uh, after new therapies and procedures come out to make sure that, uh, that the side effects that we're, we're listing are occurring not more frequently than we expected. I think the two stories you've touched on there, the, the mesh story and then kind of, if you like, uh, rising endometriosis uh, advocacy mm. um, is, uh, you know, a kind of one in the same one in the same thing. Um, and it, uh, it might seem ironic to listeners that uh, that uh, three men are sitting around here uh, discussing that. But, but I think that, you know, I think this is... Uh, this is the year that, if you like, medicine as an institution has uh, has recognised, uh, you know, uh, has recognised on mass. I think that um, that uh, uh, that women's health uh, and women's health uh, below uh, that women's health below the abdomen, you know, is is a part of you know core human health, and not just you know not just the the kind of well-meaning global health uh, types and gynaecologists and uh, obstetricians, but you know just mainstream medicine, the people who write the general textbooks, um, you know the what what lands in you know what will land in uh, in high school textbooks of you know of biology within the next you know within the next few years. I think you know things things are different. There are you know for, uh, things will hopefully be very different in the sense that. Endometriosis will stop being this, you know, this thing that happens somewhere out there in a mysterious place. Uh, you know, it's something that affects people's lives, and the fact that we don't have answers for it doesn't actually mean that we shouldn't be asking questions. Um, it's again, it's another thing that you know, the the whole uh, the whole of women's medicine shouldn't be in a in a too hard basket. In fact, uh, if we go even kind of beyond the pelvis, so to speak, say for something really classical like heart attacks. So we've all been talked uh, taught what are typical symptoms of heart attack, things like chest pain, etc. And then we're all often taught that uh, women sometimes can get what we call atypical symptoms, you know, feeling nausea and, and just a bunch of other symptoms they can feel. And so I guess the impression they created amongst us in medical school is this only happens some of the time. It happens in like 40% of women who are having a heart attack. So ca calling something that happens to literally half of all women atypical, non-typical, I mean, that's obviously kind of a, a cultural consequence but also has a very real life consequence it it disrupts our ability to diagnose what's going on and so there's been a bit of campaigning about that recently too um about really reframing what we call typical non-typical when it's you know, affecting a lot of human beings who also happen to be women and you, you'll see this uh, i think increasingly reflected in in uh, regulatory and research uh, approaches where you know there's there's actually a there you know are increasing requirements and expectations for uh, for uh, people other than 70 kilogram males to be included in studies um, and uh, you know and that that's that includes children it includes pregnant women you know we've still got a situation where where Drugs that are considered safe for pregnant women are, um, you know, uh, uh, there's this, you know, large kind of pharmacopoeia list of drugs that are safe for pregnant women that, for the most part, we don't use in non-pregnant people because we've got better alternatives. But those better alternatives have never been studied, for the most part, in pregnant women, and so pregnant women are stuck with uh, stuck with a uh, kind of with drugs that we used generations ago. This is true, and I'm. Uh 
face this problem pretty much weekly, a very narrow, restricted band of medications that I can prescribe for pregnant women. I mean, part of the issue we also have to acknowledge is the fact that it's very difficult to run trials. No one wants to run a trial enrolling pregnant women because it's high-stakes stuff, you know, if, if in case things don't work out. But, yeah, it's something we're kind of continually reminded about. Um, so it's an ongoing challenge. I think medicine's just starting uh, to, to face up uh, to, to some of its mistakes in this area. You blokes are bringing the positive this morning. This is good. 2018 wasn't as bad as I yeah. thought it was. 2019's going to be down, I'm not going to lie. So that's, yeah, we, uh, we, have, we haven't gone near mentioning the orange peril. Uh, and I think that's what it's about. If you can avoid thinking about that for a while... <laughs> there you go. Things are good. <laughs> he who shall not be named. Um, you're on Radiotherapy with Dr Sharma, Hawkeye and Panel Beater. We'll be back with more news in review in just a moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back uh, to Radiotherapy RRR, Dr Sharma, Hawkeye and Panel Beater in the studio with you this morning. Um, Hawkeye. Something we spoke about briefly uh, a few weeks ago, um, well worth mentioning uh, in the year in review. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, uh, I think we touched on the the idea of me too in medicine, and I think we had we had dreams of a of a focused program this year, inviting some of the star the uh, the female stars of medicine in Melbourne and Australia to discuss this topic. Uh, let's. We'll put it on the 2019 agenda, um, but I just wanted to. I, I think this is this year will be looked back on in the future as a really important year, um, and uh, and I think a really good, uh, a really nice summary of of uh, some of the stuff uh, comes from Esther Chu in the New England Journal, and she wrote, "Time's up for medicine. Only time will tell." I briefly touched on it last time, but I just wanted to just quickly read a couple of things that she said. She was uh, kind of. Um, the trigger was a report in the US on sexual harassment in, uh, in medicine uh, and she said that she began, tolerance of sexual harassment must not continue to be the price that women pay for a career in medicine. Uh, she said that uh, you know that that there is kind of harassment of many kinds, and she said we're tempted to be literal about sexual acts, and it's obvious why because it allows us to ignore not only the scope of the problem but also the fact that every form of discrimination places women at greater risk for sexual harassment. Um, she moves through a, a whole bunch of different areas uh, uh, in which we're, in which uh, women are systematic, systematically devalued in terms of uh, that they are promoted later than men, paid less, um, and that, you know, in every respect that actually uh, undermines their institutional power and ability to report or defend themselves against ongoing sexual abuse. And it, uh, and she, she goes on, I think, um, nicely points out that the focus on kind of psychopathology of a single bad apple is, uh, you know, is that that, that, that kind of analysis uh, really has to be left aside. We've actually got to look at how our institutions uh, uh, care for the people uh, that, uh, that work within them. Now, uh, a group of people who are mostly women when it comes to the medical workforce, um, and she ends, she ends with this, I think, really uh, good point, and it's, it's the good news point, I think, which is that the declaration of time's up for medicine feels at once urgent and aspirational. She says an indolent problem can also be a critical one, and in this case, what began as a smouldering fire is now scorching and, and uh, scorching the curtains and the roof, threatening the integrity of the whole house, the entire house of medicine. Join the movement or stand by and fall behind. And I think... Um, I think a discussion that Dr. Sharma and I were having before we came uh, came in here was that I think more and more um, 
uh, more and more people like uh, doctors like uh, Dr. Esther Chu are actually um, are actually taking positions of power and running with it, and not you know. Uh, and uh, and that the group of people who would uh, who would stand in their way are actually being increasingly marginalised by their enthusiasm, by their activity. And I think it's um I think it's it's quite inspiring. And I think we're seeing it in Australia. We're seeing it in we're seeing it in the surgical profession in Australia, an area that people thought would never could never be conquered by by people wanting uh, wanting a, a safer and uh, better uh, reality for uh, for female doctors. Um, and uh, and I think it's because it's because uh, Women and uh, and uh, and some men are actually really uh, really leading the way towards uh, towards building something better. Mm. I thought that was a really nice point by uh, Dr. Esther Chu about the mentality of the bad apple because that really allows us to kind of quarantine the problem and minimise it and say, well, we can never get rid of you know people who are just you know awfully bad, which sure we can't, but it's really about the system that enables these people to end up in a power position and go on uh, unfettered. So it's, you know, how do we really restructure the system and uh, and the incentives of people to pull those other people in line uh, rather than just l- trying to label people as kind of good uh, and bad? So there's a beautifully made point by her. The, the really encouraging thing that I took away from that Hawkeye was that um, there is emerge, there's not just a movement, there's now leadership of movement with people like Dr Chu and that's going to make the difference because that starts to transition a little bit of power and it, when we're talking about um, institutional cultures... Um, which you were just referring to, Dr Sharma, um, we'll need that kind of leadership of a movement rather than just a general generic consensus that something has to happen. Absolutely, and I think I think you know when it comes to when it comes to some of the medical leadership, a lot of which is kind of uh, voluntary activity in uh, in colleges and the like. Um, I think you know uh, the the group of people that put in the work often get. Uh, quite rightly kind of get a disproportionate say in terms of where things are going and I think more and more that work's being done by people by the the kind of people that I, I'm very happy are setting the agenda and and you know we're concentrating on Esther Chu because she was published in uh, she's a very uh, prominent voice online but she's also published in the New England Journal of Medicine but you know there are plenty of local examples and you know uh, Dr Ruth Mitchell, Dr Nikki Stamp, um, Dr. Eric Levi, who we've had. Yep, in. Yeah. absolutely. You know, there is a long, long list, and uh, you know, and we haven't named everyone, but I don't want anyone to feel left out because I think there there are people who are really, uh, really putting in and uh, setting setting this agenda, um, and uh, and pushing a really, uh, really uh, pushing things towards a, a much better place. Um, and uh, you know, and I think I think the kind of the old guard, uh, the old guard are retiring and dying, and uh, and uh, and it's probably you know it's probably not a bad thing to, yeah. to, oh, sorry uh, in fact it's one of the most encouraging things i've seen is that when these things initially popped up onto the radar i'll go back as far as uh, gabriel mcmullen's comments i think it was back in 2014 2015 people thought that this was just going to be a bit of a blip on the radar and pe- things will go back to the way they permanently were i'm not seeing that in this new generation of, of medicos of nurses and doctors the conversation just continues sustains itself and just goes from strength to strength so i'm incredibly inspired so 2018 has been a good year like that and, and there has been i mean there has been some blowback uh, but not not to the extent that I think people expected there's been this you know this uh, uh, really um, nefarious kind of uh, idea that that uh, that me too means that men can't mentor women uh, 
And uh, there's been that discussion in terms of kind of Wall Street, but also that's come up in medicine. And uh, and frankly, the kind of people who think that men, that Me Too means that they can't mentor women probably shouldn't be mentoring women, um, and need to move aside really for people for people who are, for people whether they're men or women who can, um, because that's that's rubbish. You know the 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 people who are you know sexual harassers need to stop sexually harassing that's the problem you know the the person who's being harassed is isn't at fault here the um health and medical sector isn't a homogenous health sector do you see much difference across it can you would you be prepared to nominate parts of it where there's you know real um, genuine cause for optimism that change is happening and happening as quickly as we'd like and would you be able to nominate where you think there's where it might be a little bit slower I don't think it's fast anywhere. I mean, I think that's worth saying. I don't think it's fast anywhere. I mean, Professor Joy Lorne from the London School of Tropical Hygiene and Medicine was um, was in Melbourne recently talking about global health leadership and, and talking about um, some of the disparities in global health leadership. Again, an area where the workforce is predominantly women mm-hmm. and the leadership is is predominantly men in fact there are these horrible images of all the men on the stage um you've you know and the, and those images even at who level actually don't look that much different from that horrible image of the orange man and his cabinet deciding you know on the global gag rule um and uh and you know i think um i think uh you know the, at the top things things take a while to change but like i said i think the work is being done the work is being done by the right people and uh you know uh, they are going to to dictate where this where this ends up nice one hawkeye um and it kind of gives me leverage to um uh, introduce the uh, second news item that i've that's caught my eye during the year if um if 2017 was characterised by mindfulness and meditation and, you know, pop stoicism and that kind of thing, then I've found um, that in the self-help realm of medicine and health um, that there's been this uh, tremendous rise and rise of pop psychology. Um, but what's differentiating it from other pop psychology and self-help, um, I think, is that it's largely being led by people who are... Um, quote-unquote experts, um, psychologists and psychiatrists are increasingly publishing um, this kind of work and getting in the public realm, getting in mainstream media and so on. The archetype of this, oh, and, there, and there's a, um, a Freudian slip given oh, the person really I'm going have. to talk about. Yeah, big slip. Uh, a big slip there, um, is uh, Professor Jordan Peterson, a professor of psychology at the University of uh, Toronto, um, who came to public attention in a mainstream way over his resistance to um, the University of Toronto's efforts uh, to enforce um, uh, pronoun, a particular kind of language around pronoun usage on campus. And he said that while he would always um, uh, respect any one of his students saying, I'd like to be called X, Y, or Z, um, that he didn't think the university should mandate this. That is an issue um, brought him into the public realm at about the same time that he published his book this year, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. So there's a big hint there in where he's um, seeing his place in the world. Um, And depending on how you 
perhaps are first exposed to somebody like um, I'm just using Dr. Peterson as an example. There are others, but we'll use him as an example. Depending on how you're first introduced to him, you might see him as um, a prophet of good old fashioned common sense. Um, in his 12 Rules for Life, for example, he says, "Make your bed." He says, "Walk, you know, in, walk up straight. Walk with your shoulders back, and, and and things like this." And he does have this um, this um, approach to talking about being a good man what it means to be a good man. Um, And to certain ears, that sounds like good old-fashioned common sense. But given that he situates himself the way that he does, he um, is very social and very political. Um, He he fits in there. So in terms of radiotherapy realm that he talks about, he talks about the Me Too movement. Um, He talks about gay parenting and families. Um, He talks about curriculum and pedagogy um, in sciences, um, including medicine, um, when we're talking about whether gender is a social construct or not. Um, And he... um, and he's certainly not fringe. This book, The Twelve Rules, um, as far as self-help uh, goes, um, has been extraordinary globally huge. Of all books published this year, anywhere in the world, it's the seventh biggest seller. Um, so he's far from marginal. It then kind of, in terms of like where this is going, um, is he's attracting almost, you know, I'll use editorial language here. I'm interested to see how you guys feel. But he's attracting almost cult-like following um, and particularly from young men. Um, Increasingly the audience apparently, he claims, the audience is increasingly diverse, um, but it's absolutely young men. And when he is talking about things like um, the good man, I think this matters. Um, a f- bit more to say about him, but first of all, from you guys, has he crossed your radar? He certainly has. So I haven't read the book, but I've I've met several again younger men uh, who've brought up the fact that they've kind of read his book. So I'm actually cautious here, having not read it. Uh, the things I've heard from from some of these other people who read the book is that the standing up straight, cleaning your room is kind of, kind of a metaphor for for what he should be, you know, for, for kind of deeper messages. And you know. In principle, I would say, you know, if he's focusing his attention on kind of younger men, you know, like, fair enough. I guess young men can be incredibly disaffected. There's you know, the, some of the most delinquent parts of society are, you know, disaffected young men. Um, but it's, I guess, your, your, your issue that you bring up is the expertise or claim to expertise. I, I can tell you, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that certainly has crossed my radar where it sent off kind of alarm bells, um, which I think you kind of maybe touch on later. Um, he's claims about curing his depression with his carnivore diet. <laughs> yes. That's where I went, okay, this is, yeah, this is kind of getting outside the even his expertise, whatever it may or may not be. Um, well, that's right. And then there's a perversity. So we just sang the praise of how refreshing it was to have Dr. Ford speak as an expert with testimony in her own case, um, but also demonstrating how refreshing and valuable it is to hear experts speak. Peterson um, is a real paradox in that sense because he is... Um, you know, uh, ostensibly well qualified to talk about matters, um, psychology and therefore behaviour, um, and he's clearly, um, uh, you know, a, I guess in the in the conventional sense, a public intellectual and is across a lot of the issues. But he does also 
um, what was the phrase we used in the uh, the social media conversation a few weeks ago? He got out of his lane or he's out of his wheelhouse. He, he's left his lane. And speaking about a whole range of other things. I, th- I think what going. he is is, an, is a is a high, kind of a high minded academic troll, <laughs> um, and and what I mean by that is that the the real question for for people like Jordan Peterson is at the end of all of the stuff that you're prescribing, what does the world look like? That's the question. You know, what is what is the world that you uh, that you are after? What what happens at the end of it? And and I don't think I want to. I don't think I like the idea of the world that that Jordan Peterson's looking forward to. Um, and you know, and I think he's. Uh, I think it's. I think he's um, he's veering into this kind of very cultish kind of behaviour, and and also he's he also he's not you know we're not blaming uh, for, we're not blaming where where the blame belongs, you know the fact the fact that uh, the fact that we've got a uh, you know the, the fact that our global economy you know has turned young men into you know has you know directed young men in a particular direction that's disempowered and a range of other things, you know it, women, women getting their women getting rights. Isn't what is disempowered men, no, that's right. you know, and and isn't what makes living in the world hard for young men. Yeah, and I think uh, and I think you know uh, the likes of Jordan Peterson are really, um, you know, really fermenting something that I think you know is a bit ugly. And I'm not saying that in, in defence of some kind of of some kind of rigid, uh, you know, political correctness is the you know is the phrase that's used. Um, but you know, in the sense of asking that first question that I asked, which is, what is this? What is the world you want? Yeah. And and I don't know that the world Jordan Peterson wants is a world that I want. Yeah, he speaks in a real grey area, and 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 often people will say, look, he's never said anything quote-unquote wrong. It's his followers that have interpreted the way he's talking and that's the movement that's of concern and so on. Um, but I think um, by... So I guess the topic is as much about, you know, the idea of self-help books and, and their place in popular culture. Um, the difference here seems to be that unlike many self-help books which prescribe how you might, like, come to understand yourself and grow, um, this self-help book situates the individual in a very... Per- particular social and political context and that includes things like me too the lgbtqi movement um gender relations etc etc triple r not for everyone for anyone We're in the home stretch of radiotherapy for 2018 dr sharma hawkeye and panel beater um, just in the last couple of minutes we've got together, let's take a look at uh, 2019. Um, Hawkeye, what, what's on your radar? What do you reckon we should keep an eye out for? Uh, look, I think the, the gene editing story has hit the headlines and, and is something to look out for, and that's the use of this incredible uh, technique called CRISPR-Cas9 to edit genes uh, in a way that is uh, more is the easier than ever before and it's an incredible tool in the lab and uh you know with with many possible applications um but the one thing that the world seems to have agreed on is that we're not ready to to do gene editing uh, that gene editing is not ready for the mainstream for for uh for editing uh the genomes of babies uh, at least until we think a whole lot harder about it and uh but recently uh, chinese professor chinese associate professor i think dr he um announced that he'd done it and that he'd edited the genes of, uh, of some embryos um, to, uh, to eliminate one of the kind of HIV receptors. Uh, it's unclear exactly why, um, and the risks seemingly far outweigh the, the, the kind of uh, putative benefits. Um, it seems like a, uh, I think uh, jo- Dr. Julian Savalescu, not someone who's known for his, uh, for, um, 
for uh, getting in the way of medical progress and uh, and experiments said, if true, this experiment is monstrous. And and I think, you know, it, it is in the sense that it's so far ahead of, of the discussion mm. and um, and the uh, not just that it's ahead of the discussion, but that there was so little benefit for the, uh, the babies involved. Definitely one to look out for. We spoke about it a couple of weeks ago during World HIV Week. I brought it in as a story, and I think that we, I think there's lots more for us there. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sharma, uh, I think what we're going to hear more of in 2019 is going to be pill testing, specifically at pe- festivals. So as we know, there's quite public opposition from the New South Wales Premier uh, against this, and yet people have kind of consistently died because of this. Uh, advocates are obviously pushing uh, for this because it works in terms of saving lives, but as we know, this is not going to be a scientific debate. This is a, a debate about kind of personal responsibility versus collective responsibility and what we expect from our under 25 crowds um, and uh, and what we can do to support them. Brilliant, Dr Sharma. Sorry to race you there. Um, I reckon we'll keep an eye out for definitely the federal election and health policy around that uh, come April, May. But the um, item I want to nominate um, alluded to a moment ago by Dr Sharma and Jordan Peterson is some issues are revolving around dieting, um, particularly keto, carny diet, intermittent fasting and vegan diets. I think that's about to heat up again, those debates, um, and something to look out for. Hey, look, that's a wrap for us uh, in 2018. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.